Christmas season because we are getting ready for something big, aren't we, right? Oh, I see some excitement here, right? Some people are excited to read the Bible. Yeah! We're, just, we're such Christian-y Christians, aren't we? We're a bunch of Christian-y Christians, and we love the Bible, and we're going to read it. This is a real thing. We've been talking about this for months and months and months now. I told you this idea back in June. We're going to go through this thing together as a church beginning in January. We're going to read the Bible in a year. We're going to read it chronologically, go through the books of the Bible chronologically, all the way from the beginning to the book of Revelation. We're going to read this thing. And so several of you from the get-go were excited about doing this thing. Some of you heard about it and thought, that's great. I'm not going to do it, right? <clears throat> Maybe over the course of the months, maybe you've had a change of heart. Maybe some of you who were initially excited realized, oh boy, this is just like a few weeks away. Okay. It sounded like a good idea in June, but now when I think about the kind of work that it's going to be, oh, kind of backing off a little bit. But whatever it is, I hope, wherever you feel right now, whatever you're feeling right now, I hope that you will participate in this challenge. You're not in it alone. We're in it together. And so what we're doing for these four weeks of this series is we're helping you prepare for this challenge, giving you some information about what this thing is that you will be reading beginning in January, how to read this thing, how we got this thing. But here's the deal, and I mentioned this last week, and I'm going to keep reiterating this throughout the series, okay? It's like I said last week, I can do my part, but I can only do so much, right? I can do my part, I can help you get prepared, I can give you information, I can give you context, I can give you resources, right? But I can't make you read the thing. What did I say last week? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it read the Bible. That's just how it is, right? And I can send you an email, and I can plot out all the information. Here's what you got to do, and here's what you got to buy, and here's what you got to prepare. I can send that to you, but I can't make you click on it, and I can't make you read it, and I can't make you respond to it. And that's okay, but I want you, I'm encouraging you, I'm challenging you, I'm asking you to consider doing this thing in January. And if you've decided, you know what, I'm not going to participate, whatever. If you end up not participating in this, all the information we're covering of these four weeks is still going to be useful to you and helpful to you. Whenever you do pick up that book and read the whole thing or a passage or a verse or a few words, whenever you read, hopefully what we're covering in this series will give you some context and a greater understanding for what you will read. And so last Sunday we began this series and we explained that the Bible, what is this thing? You can describe it in a lot of different ways, but ultimately the Bible is a revelation. It is God's revelation. It is God revealing himself to us. Yes, he's revealing some other things. He's revealing the nature of life to us and how this world works and how what it means to be a boss and what it means to be an employee, what it means to make money, what it means to spend time, what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a married. Yeah, he's revealing all that information about life to us. He's revealing ourselves to us, what humankind is like, what humanity is like, our weaknesses, where we're prone to failure, where we're prone to, where we're prone to temptation. But he's also, and most importantly, he is revealing himself to us in this book. And so today we're going to talk about how we got this thing that we call the Bible, this collection of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. I think I've done my math right. 66 books, this collection of books that we got the Bible. How did we get this thing? Um, does anybody know the, uh, the comedian David Cross? Does anybody know who David Cross is? He's the guy, um, anybody watch Arrested Development? Anybody watch that show? Okay, I don't watch that show because I'm a Christian, but um, you can. No, I'm kidding. I set, I set you up for that. I set you up for that. I do. I like that show, right? <laughs> I like that show. It's a funny show. It's not for everybody, but David Cross, he's the guy who plays Tobias, right? Tobias, very funny character. Listen, it's subjective. I think he's very talented. I think he's hilarious. I think that character's funny. Um, but a few years ago... Uh, he went to the internet, David Cross, went, he's not a relation of yours, is he, David Cross? No, that's good. Anyway, he went to the internet and he shared his thoughts about the Bible, where the Bible came from. I'm like, okay. And so this is a guy, talented actor, talented writer, talented comedian. Uh, he's not a Bible scholar and he doesn't claim to be. He's not a historian and he doesn't claim to be. But he took to the interwebs and he thought he would share with the population at large his thoughts about where the Bible came from. That's the very question we're trying to answer today is where did this book come from? So here are his thoughts. I'm going to attempt to read this word for word. <clears throat> Here's what David Cross has to say about where the Bible came from. <clears throat> the Bible was written and then rewritten and then edited and then re-edited and then translated from dead languages, then retranslated, then re-edited, then re-re-re-edited and then retranslated. Are we following along so far? Then given to kings for them to take their favorite parts out. Then re-edited, then retranslated, then re-edited, 
word for word, then given to the Pope for him to approve, then translated, then re-rewritten, then rewritten, re-edited, retranslated, re-edited again, all based on stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened to people who didn't know how to write. So I guess what I'm saying is the Bible is literally the world's oldest game of telephone. Well, that sums it up. That's where we got the Bible. Dr. Tobias Funke answered the question for us. I guess we can close in prayer, right? Not so much. Okay. And so he put that out there on the internet, and guess what happened? There were some Christians who got all upset about it, all bent out of shape over it, because that's one of the things that we Christians are great at. We're so easily offended, and when people say stuff about our Bible, that's our Bible you're talking about, dude. That's our Bible. That's the Word of God. How can you say stuff like that? And people got all angry because that's what, that's what Jesus commanded us to do, right? When somebody insults our sacred text, we get angry at them and we tell them how wrong they are. Isn't that what we're supposed to do as Christians? Not necessarily, right? Not at all, in fact. That's not what Christ commanded us to do. And so people responded. And maybe even as I was reading that, maybe you felt that bit of like, well, this isn't right. How can you say that? Maybe you felt that way. And I appreciate that. But let me just give you a little tip here. Don't allow yourself to fall into that trap. And those temptations, that, that temptation to, to speak up or to push back or to fight back, this is, a, this is a comedian. He's trying to be funny, and yes, he's asserting his opinion. That's an uninformed opinion. He hasn't done his research, and he's not claiming to have. He didn't look into it. He didn't investigate. He's just sharing his opinion and his thoughts, and he's trying to be funny. But yet, nevertheless, we had Christians that responded to David Cross, and they went to the Internet, and they said, here's why you're wrong, and how could you say such things? And they said things about his character, and they said mean things to him. Again, none of this is how Jesus told us to respond. Jesus warned us people would be against us and speak ill of us and all this. And yet, for some reason, we still seem to be shocked when this happens. And so people took the Internet just to tell, Christians took to the Internet just to tell David Cross how wrong he was and is about his perspective on the Bible. Now, I was curious. If I were somehow able to round up all those Christians who complained about what David Cross had to say, if I was able to talk to them, if I was able to say, hey, you Christians, hey, you guys who didn't like what, what Tobias had to say, what Dr. Tobias Funke had to say, hey, you guys, you complained about him. You said mean things about him. You said he was wrong. You said his explanation of how we got the Bible was incorrect. So let me ask you, how do we actually get it? I mean, you're telling me he's wrong, and you're saying it's your word of God, so answer me the question. If he's wrong, what's right? If he's wrong about that process, if it's not just thing where it was written and re-edited and re-retranslated and all that stuff, if he's wrong, then what's the right answer? Now, I wonder, if I took all those Christians who complained and asked them that question, how many of them would be able to answer me? I wonder how many of us, how many of us would be able to answer that question, where did we get this book? Where do we get the Bible? And so hopefully by the end of today's message, you'll have a better idea of how to answer that question. Where do we get the Bible? Because so many of us Christians, we kind of shy away from that, or we just say things like, well, it's the Word of God, and it came from God. What more do you need? I don't know. Some people need more than that. Maybe that's enough for you, but some people need more than that. So again, hopefully by the time we're done today, you'll have a better idea of how to respond to that question. And maybe you're the one who's asking the question. Maybe it's not somebody out. Maybe in your own heart, you're wondering, where do we get this? And that's a great question to have. And it's a question worth answering. Before we get into the answer, let me tell you some things that I believe about the Bible. None of this is going to shock you. I believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, or to put it another way, it was God's intention that this collection of books exists, that God breathed all these ideas, all these teachings into existence. I believe that the Bible like the Bible you have in your hands or on your phone or whatever, that Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is infallible. It is trustworthy. The instructions contained in that book are worth following. The history recorded in that book is all accurate, infallible, all accurate, Word of God. Got it, right? It's exactly what you would expect a pastor to say. Am I right? Okay? Here's another thing I believe about the Bible. And not all Christians are united on this, just saying, so you know, here's nothing I believe about the Bible and the process of how this book came together. Again, a collection of 66 individual texts compiled to be our Bible. I believe that the same Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who breathed these words into existence, that same Spirit presided over the canonization of the Bible. That process which all the books were brought together and made into one book of God's Word, one book that we call the Bible, I believe the Holy Spirit was very much involved, didn't stand back, it was very much involved in making sure 
that the integrity of the Word of God was kept together throughout the course of history. That's what I believe. And here's, let me tell you one of the reasons why I believe this. And this might not mean much to you, but it means something to me, okay? Based on what I understand about God, I think of it this way. Think of it like this. If I were God, and I'm not, but if I were God, and if I had communicated myself to the humankind, to people, I would want to preserve that word. I would want to maintain the integrity of that. I would want to keep out any kind of false influences. I would want to preserve that. And I would go to great lengths to make sure that my word was preserved. Wouldn't you do that if you were God? And so that's one of the reasons that I believe the Holy Spirit was very much involved in pulling this. It orchestrated the whole process of bringing this book together. And so the question remains, how do we get this book? And really, is it reliable? I mean, what about the Old, in the Old Testament? Is that, is it just, I mean, we're Christians. It's just the New Testament for us, right? right? Like, what, what is reliable? What can we trust about this book? And so for those of us who are Christians this morning, here's where we're going to start with our answer to this question. We're going to start with, we're going to start with Jesus. That feels like a good place to start for Christians. We're going to start with Jesus. And we're going to start with what Jesus has to say about the Old Testament. Here's the wonderful thing, okay? All right, let me do this before we get started here, okay? This is, this is an example of a Bible, right? Have you seen a Bible before? You've seen one, right? This happens to be my, my Bible. It's a study Bible. And so all that stuff I was saying about, like, the Bible being the inspired Word of God, I'm talking about this book here, okay? Now, this is in English. It's not in the original language, but this is a Bible. I've got my study notes in it, my Bible. There you go. Inspired Word of God. Let me show you some other books, just for fun. This is a Bible Reader's Companion. Do you have one of these? It was a Bible Reader's Companion. It's a commentary. It was written by some dude, Lawrence O. Richards, okay? It's a great book. It goes through book by book of the Bible, gives you an overview of the book, some information about the author, does a breakdown of here are the main things you're going to be learning about in each chapter. Great book. This is not the inspired Word of God. This guy, smart guy, smarter than me, scholar, more studious than me, done his homework, more than I ever have, but he's not God. And so his words are subject to being flawed or fallible. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Anyway, not the Bible, not the inspired, great book, not the inspired word of God. Here's another book called Hand Me Another Brick by Charles Swindoll. Anybody know about Charles Swindoll? Did you ever hear that guy? Is he still doing his thing? Anyway, this is a great book specifically about Christian leadership. Awesome stuff. If you're a leader and you're in the Christian church, it's great information for you. Wonderful, wonderful ideas, wonderful thoughts based on Scripture, but it's not Scripture, not the inspired Word of God. One more book just for fun. This is a book called Act Like Men. Men, 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 right? Some of us guys read this book back, when did we do that? Was that, that was like, was it January? Okay, almost a year ago. Anyway, we read this book. This is by James McDonald. A lot of great teachings in this book for dudes to be reading and how to live out your faith as a man in this culture. Wonderful ideas. Also some other ideas in this book that I'm like, I don't know, James. I don't know, Mr. McDonald here. What's going on? So there are some ideas that I'm not quite sure about. But guess what? You're allowed to doubt it because this is not the inspired word of God. Why am I making this point? Because sometimes we Christians get confused. We put everything on an equal plane, right? And some old school Christians, they were like, you know what, the Bible is equal to my hymnal, is equal to the Constitution. Nope, not equal, right? This is a text unlike any other, all right? I think we've made that point, right? Okay, so let's move on. What, is Jesus, <clears throat> what does Jesus have to say about the Old Testament? Here's what Jesus had to say about the Old Testament. It's the Word of God. <laughs> And here's the thing, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, for those of us who, arrived, who have arrived at the conclusion that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he really is the Son of God, we believe what he has to say. And if he's going to vouch for the Old Testament and say that it's the Word of God, we're going to believe it. So here's what I want you to know about the difference between your Old Testament and the Bible that Jesus referred to as God's sovereign Word, okay? The content, catch that word content, the content in your Old Testament, the one that you have right now, in your hand, on your phone, the content in your Old Testament is the very same as the Bible that Jesus referred to as the Word of God, as Scripture, with three important exceptions there. Three little differences, not exceptions, three little differences, or significant differences, between your Old Testament and the Bible that Jesus taught from. Now, the Bible that Jesus referred to, he didn't call it the Old Testament because it was the only Testament, right? 
and they didn't call it the Bible. It would have been referred to as the Law and the Prophets. And so as you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're reading about Jesus, and when Jesus refers to the Law and the Prophets, he's talking about his Bible. Sometimes it's referred to as the Law, the Prophet, and the Psalms, or the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. He's talking about his Bible. Now, in Hebrew, he would have called his Bible the Tanakh, right? Which, of course, is Klingon for Bible, right? No, it's not. It's Hebrew. It's Hebrew for Bible. So again, the Bible that Jesus is working from, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, it's the same as the Old Testament in your Bible with these three things to note. Number one, yours is in English, okay? That's different. There's been a translation that's obvious, okay? Hebrew Bible was written in? Oh, you guys are great. Yeah, Hebrew Bible is written in, in Hebrew, right? The Tanakh was in Hebrew. Our Bibles, have, our Old Testament has been translated into English. One important thing to know, right? Here's another thing. The division of books. There were, here we go with numbers, there were 24, 24 books in the Tanakh. There are 39, I may be wrong about that 24, maybe it's 26, but there are 39 books in the Old Testament. You say, well, where did these extra books come from? It's how the books are divided. And so in the Tanakh and the Bible that Jesus was working from, you had books like First and Second Kings that were combined in just the book of Kings, First and Second Chronicles, just Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah are two different books in your Old Testament. They were one in the Tanakh, okay? And so those are the three differences. The language, I'm sorry, did I only cover two? The language, the division of books, i got one more to go. The language, the division of books, and also the order in which they appear. The Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the books are not laid out in chronological order, your Old Testament, the books, are not laid out in chronological order, okay? Neither one is, and they're both different from each other. But the content, that's what's important. The content, the inspired Word of God, the content, the teachings, the history is the same. Jesus vouched for it. Here's why this is significant. In Jesus' day, did Sean warn you about today's message? This is, this is information heavy, dudes. You got this? All right, here we go. In Jesus' day, he had two books, two different collections of texts that he could have referred to as the inspired Word of God. He had two options, the Tanakh or the Septuagint. Is that a word you've heard before, the Septuagint? All right. Bible school, yes. The Tanakh or the Septuagint. And he could have referred to either one of those as the Word of God, but he does not choose to refer to the Septuagint as the Word of God. He refers to the Tanakh, which is what you have in your Old Testament. Here's what the Septuagint is. The Septuagint is all the books, all the books from the Tanakh, all of them, plus 15 more, translated into Greek. Okay? We good so far? <laughs> the Septuagint. You guys writing this stuff down? You don't need to. That's fine. The Septuagint, it's all, it's, it's the entire Tanakh, the entire Hebrew Bible, what you have in your, it's all of that, plus 15 extra books translated into Greek. Those 15 extra books have a name. Bonus points if you get this one right. Anybody know what that name is? Yep, it's the Apocrypha. Some of are like, I don't want to say it out loud because that might be wrong. Yes, it is the Apocrypha, okay? Have you heard of the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha. Ooh, that sounds terribly mysterious, doesn't it, right? The Apocrypha. Right? Almost sounds like Apocalypse has nothing to do with that. The Apocrypha. And there's a lot been made over the Apocrypha. What is, what is this? It actually, the word Apocrypha means hidden or secret. Ooh, what are we up to here? What are these extra texts about? And why don't we have them? What's going on there? What's the story? The story of the Apocrypha, it's maybe not as, as, as interesting as we want it to be. You know, we love, we, we love conspiracies, don't we? We love to think there's some secret. God has done something secret that we don't know. No, there's nothing really all that mysterious about it, okay? And so here, if I'm going to explain what the Apocrypha is, we've got to know some church history, right? You ready? So we've got to know some church history before we understand the Apocrypha. So brief history of the Old Testament, right? Brief history, this is before, the brief history of the Old Testament. Here's what happens. God establishes the nation of Israel, okay? And most of the Old Testament is the story of their relationship, God and Israel, going back and forth, this yo-yo relationship. And the people of Israel, they cling to God, and they're blessed by God, and then they stray from God, and they suffer the consequences of the string, and then they go back to God, and God forgives them, restores back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, at a certain point in time, at a certain point in time, the nation of Israel divides into two nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, two different nations. And at a certain point in time, both of those nations are conquered by the Babylonian Empire. 
And so the Babylonians come in, they kill a whole lot of the Israelites, a whole lot of the Jewish people, the Hebrews, all the same group of people, by the way, Hebrews, Jews, Israelites, different names, but the same group of people. Wipe out a lot of them, take the rest of them captive, take them to Babylon. Well, eventually time goes on, the Babylons fall, and they're conquered by the Persians. And so the Persians take over, and eventually, under Persian law, the Israelites are allowed to go back to Jerusalem, back to the holy city. There wasn't a mad rush to get back, because most of the Israelites had never even seen Jerusalem. I mean, they were born in captivity, they lived in captivity. Like, I heard Grandpa tell stories about Jerusalem, I heard about the temple, I don't really care, I've got a life here. So there was a trickling back to Jerusalem. Well, eventually, eventually the Greeks, you you study Alexander the Great, you have to learn about that in school. All right, it's like where the history you learn about in school lines up with Bible history. Isn't that fun? So the Greeks come into power. They overthrow the Persians. And the Greeks, the Greeks accomplish some really significant things. One of the things that they accomplish is they make Greek, their language, they make that. Basically, that becomes the common language that most people learn, that most people speak, okay? And so that's what was going on. Now, before Jesus enters the scene, before he's born in a little manger in Bethlehem and you sing the song and it's Christmas time, before all that happens, the Romans come in. They become the superpower. They, the Roman Empire comes in and conquers the Persians, and so that's what happens there. But the Romans were really great about something. If something wasn't broken, if it ain't broken, we're not going to fix it, right? And so the Romans didn't try to get everybody to speak Roman or Italian. Right? The Romans were like, okay, everybody speaks Greek. Let's stick with Greek. Greek's the common language. That's fine. That's good. So that's what we have. And so during this period of time, the intertestamental period, isn't that fun? Intertestamental. If you want to know how to spell that, don't ask me. The intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's when these books were written and compiled. The Apocrypha. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And most of those books have to do with the history of that time. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why were they calling the Apocrypha? Why was it secret? Why was it hidden? It was the Jewish people trying to preserve their history of what was going on. They were trying to preserve their history. The Apocrypha. These books, here's important, it's very important for you to know this. These were never considered by the ancient Jewish people who compiled them and wrote them. They were never considered to be equal with Scripture. Okay? If you're going to take away something from this whole talk, that's one. They were never considered to be equal with the Word of God. These books, they were good, right? They were helpful. They included history and stuff, but they weren't Scripture. And so that's the Apocrypha, 15 books compiled during that intertestamental period, right? And that's what they were. And so, back to the Septuagint. How do we get that? Well, at a certain point in time, 70 Jewish scholars, okay? That's why it's called the Septuagint. That's a Latin term that means a group of 70. So there were 70, maybe 72, maybe two extra snuck in. 70 or 72 Jewish scholars gathered together and said, okay, here we are. We live in this time. Let me give you an idea of when this whole process started, the Septuagint. Look at this. i got to look at my notes here. The Septuagint, they began writing the Septuagint in the 3rd century and they didn't, B.C., and they didn't finish until 132 B.C., so it took them a long time to do this. And so these 70 or 72 Jewish scholars got together and said, our people, the Hebrews, don't speak Hebrew anymore. And our Bible is in Hebrew. The Word of God is in Hebrew. Let's translate it into Greek so that our people can access the Word of God. And that sounded like a great idea. And so it wasn't like one guy sat down and did No, it was a group of 70 got together to make sure they got it right. You know, in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about, they've got the priests, they've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, right? The scribe, that was a thing in Jewish culture. A scribe would just write something down and copy it, make sure they got it right. It was a thing they took very seriously. And so you had these 70 Jewish scholars taking this process very seriously. We're going to translate our Hebrew Bible into Greek because the Hebrews don't read Hebrew, but they do read Greek, and then they'll be able to access the Word of God. Let's get to it. Somebody raises their hand. Should we include um, the Apocrypha? And for whatever reason... They decided to include the Apocrypha in that Greek text, okay? And so that's how the Septuagint came to be. It's important to note, let me go back to this. Now, if you wanted to, and you're not going to do this, and frankly, neither am I, but if you wanted to, you could go back and read the Talmud. Oh, I've just mentioned another book. Do you know what that is? There's actually two different versions of it. There's the Babylonian, there's the Jerusalem one. Anyway, you go back and read that. That is an ancient Jewish text, a rabbinical text, Again, it was not the Bible. It was more like a book like this about Jewish leadership, okay? You could go back to that, and you could learn the fact that, they, again, the ancient Jewish people, the original people, they never, can I say this one more time, they never considered the Apocrypha to be equal with Scripture. There's a difference, and they knew it, and they believed it. However, 
as time went on, the waters got muddy, right? You've got your Hebrew Bible. People don't speak Hebrew. You've got the Septuagint, and people are brought up thinking, well, I guess all this, this is all, this is God's Word, right? So the waters got muddy as time was on, went on, but when Jesus comes into this world, he clarifies, and the book that he refers to as Scripture, as God's Word, is the Tanakh, not the Septuagint, okay? Are you looking for a main bullet point here, something that makes sense, something you can use? Here's your main bullet point. Your Old Testament is the same as the Bible Jesus used. There's your bullet point. Why have I gone to such great lengths to explain this to you? Well, here's the thing you need to know. There's a difference. And you've heard this. Like, what's up with this? There's a difference between the Catholic Bible and the Bible Bible, right? There's a difference. What's the difference between the Catholic Bible? They've got seven books that we don't have in our Old Testament. What's up with that? And so a Protestant would say to the Catholic, why do you have these extra books? And a Catholic would say to the Protestant, why did you take those books out? What's up? Let me explain how that happened. You have to move forward in time. You're moving to the time of the church fathers. I'll explain the church fathers a little bit later. The time of the church fathers, there was a guy named Jerome. And Jerome said, we need to include seven, not all 15, but seven of the books from the Apocrypha. They need to be included in the Old Testament. And so that was the version of the Bible that eventually the Catholics adopted and went with. That's why there's a difference. So the Catholic Bible has seven books in it that are from the Apocrypha, okay? And so listen, I've, I've said this before here at Hope Community Church. We're coming here. We're from all different backgrounds. We've got Catholics. We've got Protestants. We've got atheists. We've got, you know, whatever you got. We, we're here, right? We're all from different backgrounds. We're not picking on the Catholics. I'm not picking on the Catholics. I don't want to offend the Catholics. And if you're Catholic, I'm sorry. I'm not trying. I'm just saying, there's the difference. You've got those books. Why do you have them? You'd have to ask Jerome, all right? And he's dead, so it's going to be tough to get an answer out of him. <laughs> So those are the books that are in there. It's just the important thing is those were never, by the original people, by the, they were never considered to be equal with Scripture, okay? And so the question is, well, how dangerous is it to have extra books in your Old Testament? Well, I do believe that there is an inherent danger in believing that something is infallible when, in fact, it could be flawed. There could be errors in it. And I'm not suggesting that the books of the Apocrypha are evil or wrong. I'm just saying that they're not equal to the inspired Word of God. Great? Good? Okay. How about the New Testament? <clears throat> if you thought that was fun, let's go to the New Testament. The authority of the Scripture, the authority of the new canon, okay? You've got an old canon, then there's a new canon. Where should we start with the New Testament? Oh, I don't know. Let's start with Jesus <laughs> and what he did and what he had to say. All right, now this all ties into how we got our canon. There's something you need to know about Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished on this earth. Now, so many of us, we know that Jesus had a group of disciples, right? Anybody know how many disciples did Jesus have? You're afraid to guess, aren't you? How many? Yeah, yeah 12. 12 disciples, right? And a whole lot more people that followed him, but there were 12 that he called and appointed to be his disciples, right? And then later on, he does something. He gathers those together, and he makes them, he makes them into apostles, okay? And so there's one kind of little... I mean, Judas doesn't make the cut, and that's a whole other story. Anyway, but he makes them... His apostles. Now, a thing that modern-day Christians do is sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. Well, it's the disciples, it's the apostles, whatever it is. Those aren't, technically speaking, and listen, I'm not the terminology police, but you need to know this. Technically speaking, those terms are not interchangeable. This is something specific and unique that Jesus did, is creating and ordaining, if I could use that term, apostles. Apostle means sent one just literally, generally, sent one. But an apostle of Jesus is someone that Jesus literally chose and sent into the world to be his representative and to bear his message. And so as the church age begins, which we're still living in this church age, the age of the church, the church is the movement of Jesus Christ in the world. As the church age begins, you begin with the apostolic period. The apostolic period had a beginning and an end. The apostolic period ended when the last apostle died. It was over. Here's what you need to know about your New Testament, and this is significant. You're liking this? I got one person who's enjoying it. That's okay. I'll take it. Here's what you need to know about your New Testament. The 27 books in your New Testament were all written during that apostolic period. That would become, later on become one of the requirements for inclusion in the New Canon, in the New Testament Canon. Is written during the apostolic period, okay? Those books carried 
extra weight. And so here's what happened. You got to think about this. After the apostolic period, and listen, there's not like a specific date. Here's where it cut off and here's where a new period began. But basically, here's what happened. After the apostles died, the apostolic period ends, and then we enter into this age of the church fathers. Okay, why do we call it that? We just made it up. It's the age of church fathers. And so these guys, and you may have heard some of their names thrown out time and again, these guys had a very important task. Can you imagine being alive at that time? And you just get word, hey, the last one, John the Apostle, he just died. Oh, boy, they're all gone. Thank God we've got their writings. Oh, their writings. We've got to do something about that. We've got to preserve these texts. I mean, that was the job. That was one of the main jobs that the church fathers has. We need to maintain the integrity of this thing going forward. John's dead. They're all gone. We, gotta, we, gotta, we have to maintain the integrity of this. We have to. We have to maintain the integrity of our faith, of our beliefs. We need a a canon. And so the fact that they were going to need a new canon, this was something that they anticipated. This is something that they were used to in their culture. From the Old Testament, that was the thing. They had a canon, a collection of books, and they were anticipating there's something new that Jesus accomplished. There's going to be a new canon that accompanies this new thing. And so by the time we get to the year 140 A.D., i got to check that. I don't think that's one. 140 A.D., the church fathers had decided we... Yeah, we need to do this. We need to make sure we are establishing a new canon to preserve our faith going forward, preserve the Word of God going forward. Because there are a lot of other texts being written during the time. It's not like every book written, not every letter written during the apostolic period was the Word of God. It's not like that. I mean, there could have been some other great things that were being written about Jesus and how to follow him, and that's great, but they weren't the same as the Word of God. And so that's the job that the church fathers had, is maintaining the integrity of this kind of going forward. And so here's what happened. From the get-go, most of the books, and this is encouraging, and this is kind of like a relief to me, most of the 27 books in your New Testament, from the get-go, were a given, were included. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the letters of Paul, which is the vast majority of your New Testament, from the get-go, were all considered the inspired word of God. Why? Because they were written during the apostolic period, most of them were written by apostles or close friends of the apostles or about the apostles or all the above. Whew. Okay? And so you've got the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, apostle. John, apostle. John, Mark. It was Mark's full name was John Mark. Travel with Peter. Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel. Oh, we're getting so confused right now. I love it. I see this face like, what is, this? is this going to all work out? Luke wrote a gospel. He also wrote the book of Acts. That was Paul's traveling buddy. Paul was an apostle. Side note. Let me go over here for a side note. Side note, some people during Paul's lifetime didn't consider Paul an apostle, but he's like, no, guys, I'm totally an apostle. Jesus appeared to me. And then later on, Peter vouched for him, and nobody doubted Peter's status as an apostle. He's like, well, Paul vouched for him. Paul, uh, Peter even goes so far as to say that Paul's words are Scripture. Well, that settles it, right? We got Peter, Peter vouching for him. Fantastic. And so all those books, and that's most of your New Testament, from the get-go were shoo-in. Definitely going to be included in the canon. I see one smile. That's all I need. Here we go. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. But there were some books, some books that were debated. Let me give you an example. Hebrews, book of Hebrews was debated. Should this be included? Is this the inspired word of God or is it not? They had to talk about that. I mean, it was written during the apostolic period. They could date it back to that time period. It was written about apostolic things, but they didn't know who wrote it. The content made sense. They just didn't know who wrote it. We still don't know who wrote it. Some people are like, is this Paul? Well, Paul usually normally signs his stuff. Like, takes a whole paragraph to say it's from him. This doesn't say that. This is different. And so there was some debate over that. And so as time went on, as they got more official about this process, let me give you some criteria that the church fathers established. Again, like I said before, they're looking for apostolic content. Okay, apostolic authorship, awesome. Apostolic content. If you can prove that was, this was written by one of the apostles, if we can cross-reference it and date it to that time, awesome. Edification of the church was another requirement. Edification of the church. Somebody please jot this down. It's the first time I've used the term edification. How about that, right? No applause. That's fine. I don't need it. Edification. I've never used that term. Anybody know what edification means? Seriously, that's why I never used it. What does it mean? I don't know. Edification means growth of the church, right? To edify, to make better. People were more closely following Jesus. I don't use that term edification. What's the term I use? I use transformation. Growing into their faith. Edification of the church. And so these are the things that they're looking for. Was it written during the apostolic period? If it was written by an apostle, that's a bonus. Is it edifying to the church? And here's the other requirement. Is it consistent with everything else we've read? 
Another example of one of the books that they were like, oh, I'm not sure about James. It was James, the book of James. Because some of the church fathers read the book of James, and they thought, well, this seems to conflict with what Paul is saying, because James seems to be highlighting like a work salvation type thing, like you got to work for it. And, and Paul doesn't seem to be saying that. Well, guess what? If you actually read the book of James in its entirety, you'll learn that he says the exact same message that Paul says. He didn't say you're saved by works. He says you're saved by faith. He says you're saved for works, which is exactly what Paul said. So that's why eventually that was included, okay? And so this process, like I said, this process began in about 140 A.D. where the church fathers decided we need to get this happening. And so we move forward in time. Centuries are passing, okay? Centuries are passing as they're trying to establish this canon. Why? Because they need to get it right, and as I shared with you before, my belief, my firm belief is that the Holy Spirit, that God himself was overseeing this whole process. Centuries are passing. They're having their conversations. They're having council meetings. They're having conversations about what should be included in the New Testament ta- canon. We get to the year 360 A.D., 360. And at that point, a church father named Athanasius gave us the 27 books that are in He said, this, this is it. Athanasius said, these are the 27 books. The same ones that you have in your New Testament are the ones that Athanasius put out there. That's a great name, isn't it? Somebody tell the hipsters that that's a name so they can start naming their babies Athanasius. I want to bring that back. Let them know. Send them a memo. Athanasius is the new hip name. Athanasius, again, in 360 said, these 27, we've been debating this for centuries. This is it. But that didn't settle the issue. (laughs) And so Athanasius, the same 27 that are in your New Testament, he said, these are the 27 books. Now, at that time, you had Constantine. He was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And so Constantine had made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Side note, let me go over here. Side note, I think that was a terrible idea. You cannot combine church and state. You really can't. You can't enforce people by use of government to become Christians. It doesn't work out, and it hasn't worked out. Okay, so Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and he was pushing for a canon too. Now, we don't know Constantine's heart. Some people think he was a general, con- genuine convert to Christianity. Some people think he was just using Christianity for political gain. We don't know. God knows. And so Athanasius presents this to Constantine. Constantine says, yep, that looks good to me, right? All right, so whatever that's worth. But then we also have Eusebius, another fun name. Eusebius was a church historian. We're talking about three. 360 AD, Eusebius takes a look at these 27 books, okay? And so he's been charting these few centuries that the church has existed. He's been charting the history of the church. How did it start? Back in Acts, Peter and John stood up and did these things, and how that led to these churches, and how that led to... Like, he's been charting this whole thing. He was a well-respected scholar, historian of the church, and Eusebius looks at this and says, this is it. This is it. These 27 books are the inspired word of God. So that settles it. Well, not so much. They decided to have a council meeting, okay? And so you've got Athanasius saying yes. You've got Constantine saying yes. You've got, um, what did I say? Eusebius saying thank you. You also had a couple other guys weigh in. Augustine and Jerome. Remember Jerome from earlier? Jerome who added those seven books into the Old Testament, right? Well, even Augustine and Jerome who didn't agree on everything, they both agreed. Well respected. They both agreed on the twenty-seven. And so you've got Athanasius, you've got Constantine, you've got Eusebius, you've got uh, those other two guys I just mentioned, you've got Augustine, you've got Jerome, all in agreement. Then they said, let's have a council meeting, let's figure this out, okay? And so they all met, church fathers, a large portion of church fathers, church leaders met in Laodicea in 363 and had a council meeting. And their main thing they were trying to sort through, again, church fathers, what are they tasked with? We need to preserve this going forward. The apostles said, we need to preserve this going forward. So they had a council meeting and they took it seriously. The main thing that they were debating is these 27 books, are these canon, are these books all, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the inspired word of God? I assume there was a whole lot of prayer during those council meetings and debates. And so during these council meetings, someone would say, okay, all these guys have said yes to the book of James. Are we absolutely certain? And they go back and they cross reference. Okay, we're certain about that. Let's move on. What about this book over here? What about the Gospel of Thomas? Should this be included? Well, this book was written 100 years after Thomas died, so it's fake. It's fake news. Fake news has been around forever. We're not going to include that. Okay, let's move on. And so after the end of this, I'm not talking about like an hour-long meeting, right? All in favor, aye. I'm talking about a, a, a length of time where they're all gathered together to sort through this. And at the end of that meeting, they said, you know what? 27. These are the 27. All in favor? Aye. All, appro- all, uh, what is it? all opposed? <laughs> nay. Nobody said nay. <clears throat> and they all moved on. All approved. All agreed. So that settles the matter. 
Well, not so much. They had a second council meeting. They had another one, 393 in Hippo, H-I-P-P-O, it's North Africa, spelled just like the hippopotamus, short for Hippo. Had another council meeting, talk about the same thing. They prayed, debated, went back and forth. Guess what they decided? All agreed, 27. So that settles it. Nope, they did one more. One more council meeting. This was the last one, I promise. Okay, no more, no more jokes. One more council meeting in Carthage in 397. And again, debating, are we sure, are we sure, are we sure? Yes, we all agree, 27. And that's where we got our Bible. Thank you. That was silly. I know that was silly. I know that was silly. So what's the point of all this? I hope there's a point, because that was exhausting. Is there a point to all this? You can believe, as a Christian, those of you who are Christian, you can believe, hey, listen, the Bible came from God, and you would be right. But I think it's very important for us to be more informed than that, to have an idea. You're going to walk out of this space, you're not going to remember all these dates and all these names. Guess what? By later this afternoon, I'll have forgotten most of it, right? But it's important to know that there is a reason to believe that this actually is the Word of God. And yes, we rely on faith, and that's great, but it's not just faith. We also have fact, you know? To have faith is wonderful, and it's important, and it's essential, and you can't take away from that. But to have history to support your faith is important. This book is worth reading. Take a look at the passage in your bulletin. It's first, it's first Timothy, right? This is Paul. Yes, the Apostle Paul. It's been proven to us. The Apostle Paul writing to his little buddy Timothy, his son in the faith. Timothy was becoming a pastor. And, oh, I'm sorry, Second Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, and here's what he says to him. He says to Timothy, yes, he's preparing to be a pastor. As he's entering into this role of being a pastor, he says, but as for you, continue of what you've learned and what you've become convinced of because you, I'm sorry, because you know those from who you've learned it and how from infancy, infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. That's a reference to the Tanakh. That's a reference to the Old Testament. Here's Paul. Okay, yeah, Jesus vouched for it, but here's Paul vouching for it as well. Remember these Scriptures. He doesn't say, get rid of them because now we're living in the New Testament. No, he says, remember these. Draw on these because the Old Testament, guess what? It is the story of Jesus also, Right? of why he was needed. Draw on these, know these, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament makes us wise, points us to Jesus. All Scripture, that's what the Apostle says, all Scripture, not just your favorite parts, not the parts that confirm how you want to live and how you want to be and how you want to spend and how you want to, you know, no. All Scripture, even the parts we want to skip over, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly, what's the word? Thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. There are churches out there, not too far away from here, there are churches where they devote so much of their time to learning the Bible. Awesome! They devote so much of themselves to knowledge. Give me knowledge. I want to learn the Bible. I want to learn the Bible. I want to learn the Bible. That's great. But it's useless if you're not doing what it says you need to do, right? You need to do it. It can't just be learning. You need to do it. There are some churches out there that put so much emphasis on doing. We need to love and we need to serve and we need to give back and we need to raise money and we need to do this for that person. Do that. Great. Fantastic. But if you don't know the Bible, you're not equipped for the doing. You just aren't. So here's the church that we are, Hope Community Church. Here's what we are. We are both. We got to be both. It can't be one or the other. We're not going to be a group of people just sitting around. Let's make sure we get all of our theology straight. Let's make sure we really know the Bible. No, we got to know it and we got to do it because we can't do it if we don't know how to do it because we won't be equipped. And so that's why we are reading our Bible in 2019 and we will walk away from that experience more informed and so much more equipped to be the church that Jesus has called us and created us to be. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you. Thank you for preserving your word for us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for the canon. Thank you for the apostles. Thank you for the church fathers. Thank you for all of those who have come in between, who have carried forward your word and brought your message to us. Father God, I ask that you would please 
convict each one of us as we need to be convicted. We need to prioritize studying your word. We know that. So allow us to make that a priority. Allow us to make, to make reading your word a joy in our lives. Let us look forward to that time. And Father God, I pray over these weeks leading up to January that we would be convinced of this, that we would prepare ourselves for this, and that we would look forward to getting to know you better in 2019. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Josh. I didn't bring my uh, notebook, so I'm going to have to copy somebody's notes later. That was a lot to take in, but thank you. It was all good stuff. Um, now that we have our Christmas tree here, and uh, it's that time of year, would it be all right if we played some Christmas music for the last song? Yeah. All right. So what do you want to do, baby, it's cold outside or something like that? Sure. <laughs> Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Uh, well, since it's in your bulletin, we're going to do We Three Kings. Uh, please rise for our last song. could just take a seat real quick. We got a few last minute closing announcements. Um, also, I never had read the lyrics to that song before. I thought Orientar was all one word, so I learned something today. Um, so just a few close, closing announcements. Actually, first off, round of applause for Josh. That was a lot of info that he memorized. That was incredible. And he, and he does that because he loves you guys. He wants you to be informed, and so that took a lot of study. That's very impressive. So, Advent Conspiracy in your bulletin. It's the insert right here. We just want to touch on this right uh, at the end because we want you to be thinking of this as you're going out. There's a ton of opportunities to serve. We really want to redirect our spending this year as a church. So rather than spending uh, and buying gifts on people that don't necessarily need those things, we can put them and direct it towards uh, these really good places. And so Bridge to Recovery, a contact person for that is Lori Droxler. This is a really amazing ministry uh, where they care for people that have uh, suffered from um, just just uh, addictions and, and things like that. And so if you uh, are able to bake a dessert, then that would be 
incredible and get that to Lori as soon as possible. All the information is in the bulletin here, so you just need to read that to make sure. You also have the opportunity to adopt a Bridge to Recovery child, and so their parents unfortunately don't have the opportunity to provide them with a Christmas gift, and so if you're interested in doing that, you can purchase a gift for them and, and uh, get that to them. And so, again, Lori Droxer is the point person for that, so contact her. Uh, another thing we've got is Delco Sheriff's, Sheriff's Office Winter Clothing Drive. So mittens, gloves, hats, and scarves. These are for men and women, boys and girls in need. And so these need to be new. So unfortunately, we can't take your used ones. So if you have new uh, ones of that or, or while you're out, you pick up some. That would be incredible. We also have got our Kenya Fund coming up. So if you are able to donate to that, even just put a couple uh, coins in, we're starting to raise money in order to send uh, our team over. Uh, we're looking like a pretty good team this year. This is the first time going on our own without Bethlehem. And so we're really excited about that. So if, you're, if that's laid on your heart, please give towards that. We also have City Team on the back. A lot of stuff, a lot of ways to serve. December 22nd, there's only one date left. I think December 15th got all filled up. And so December 22nd, that's an opportunity to serve with City Team or the Christmas gift delivery. Really awesome thing to be a part of. Also, Joy uh, and the Cities, they did this amazing thing called Cookies for the Homeless, where you can either bake cookies and drop them off uh, and with, to Joy, or you can go and help them package those, and all the information is in there. And then, of course, the normal service opportunities that we have, Prospect Park Elementary School Food Drive, the community store team and our monthly service opportunity at loaves and fishes wow that was a lot a lot of service opportunities thank you again josh is the one that deserves applause really, i'm reading this so uh basically again the whole point is this we want to give we always want to give but especially in this season of christmas when we're thinking about others we really want to focus and redirect our spending towards those in need uh another one final thing that i want to mention is we actually have the opportunity as our youth group to do a service opportunity this christmas uh, one of our students came to us with this really amazing idea of adopting a family within ridley park uh, and Prospect Park area. And so what we're going to do is on December 15th, we're going to have a little Christmas party for the youth. You guys can bring your friends. That's a Saturday night. It's going to be at the Fellmans. They're awesome. Uh, and so a bunch of likes. Yeah, so of course, please applaud for them. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go out, do a little scavenger hunt at the uh, Springfield Mall. We're going to purchase the items that we need to purchase for them and then come back and spend the rest of the time just celebrating Christmas and doing things like that. Again, we're always looking for little ways in order to serve our community, and we really want to instill that in our youth as well as ourselves. And so I believe that is everything. I'm going to close in prayer, and then y'all can head on out. So let's uh, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the, the rich history that our church has, or the global church, the big C church um, that we have, Lord. And we thank you for Pastor Josh for bringing that message to us today to give us greater confidence in your word and the way that it was created, Lord. Um, we trust you, and we believe that you gave us this word, and we're grateful.